You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. So uh, I have a topic that I'd like for us to start with today on our episode. The workshops for NeurIPS 2019 have just been announced. How exciting. Um, and exciting. we should say, uh, full disclosure, you, Neil, sit on the board of NeurIPS, and I am the press chair for, for this year on the organizing committee. Um, but it looks like we've got quite a robust lineup. Um, there were 111 applications and 51 were selected. And Jen Wartman Vaughn, who is the uh, workshop senior chair this year, um, wrote a really nice blog post that you can find on the NeurIPS Medium account about how decisions were made, what the evaluation system was, and some, some trends and things that, that the, the workshops team saw. And um, a couple of the big takeaways that I found really interesting um, from Jen's post were that um, the the workshop chair team really saw that diversity was a priority for the, a lot of the applications that they got, um, and that they really saw some some unexpected topics and and innovation around programming. But then at the same time, they saw people relying heavily on success for uh, workshops from past years, and that also people were had huge organizing lists, like mm. there were many many organizers which seemed in from her post seemed like a weird thing like you wouldn't need that people many people to organize the workshop and then also over uh overfitting could we call it overfitting overfitting of celebrity guests unconfirmed sort of celebrity speakers would appear on lots of applications but the takeaway is is that there's an, a fantastic lineup of stuff coming up this year um there's a lot of stuff in health and and Interestingly, Neil, there's there's a bunch of stuff in systems, and I think one of them is ML for systems, and the other one is systems for ML. Yeah, that's right. I th so yeah, just to be clear, when you say celebrities, you don't really mean real celebrities. You mean celebrities. I mean celebrities for us. I mean Matt Damon is not going to come talk at anybody's workshop. I mean like everybody is saying Andrew Ng's coming to my workshop. Yeah, although I was at the COGEX meeting in the UK and at the, the awards dinner, Orlando Bloom was there. Is this when we jumped the shark? Why was Orlando Bloom at this He's meeting? a friend of the one of the organizers of COGEX. But the thing about it that was, um, there was another guy there who was doing all the um, sort of awards. And he's someone, I think he was on like the, like the X Factor or something from a long time ago. He was a great singer. <laughs> I'm, I'm struggling a little bit to remember his name. And he did a really great job. And he obviously does this. I, I'd, I'd forgotten a little bit who he was, but he'd done this really great job throughout the whole evening. And then I, at, right at the end, like Orlando Bloom jumps on the stage. I just thought that sucks. <laughs> oh, no. Orlando Bloom. Yeah, what, Orlando what Bloom you, was there. So, so just to clarify, there were some meetings where genuine celebrities come we we may get an a-list celebrity as opposed to the niche list celebrity that we're probably working with here. I, I would say if someone would started pitching them their autonomous vehicle startup he was pretty interested nice. I it's a funny setup because it's sort of like uh i think that they're all you know obviously people are like excited about celebrity but of course these celebrities are sort of they're, they're, they're talking about autonomous driving i mean they're pretty wild by that too just don't I, forget that um <laughs> Next time you see Orlando Bloom, remember to pitch you your autonomous <laughs> vehicle startup. In autonomous driving. <laughs> Actually, the amount of money it takes to get an autonomous vehicle, I'm not sure even Orlando Bloom can afford an autonomous yeah. vehicle startup. You need six Orlando Blooms together <laughs> to get your autonomous vehicle started off the ground. Yes, I was very interested. So it's interesting because one of them, I think, is sort of ML for systems and the other one's systems for ML. 
Yeah. And of course, this is this actually reminds me. So I think ML sits workshop on systems for ML, and there's another work on ML for systems, which is of course one of the really interesting things that happens a lot in machine learning. You take any subject area, and you can always do that. Um, well, not always, uh, but you can often sort of say, "Oh, you know, I'm doing systems research. I'm doing." machine learning for programming languages, like improving programming languages with machine learning, or I'm doing programming languages for machine learning, like improving machine learning with programming languages. And of course, that really is a big area right. for systems research at the moment, both you know, improving how computer systems are deployed and operated and made more efficient using machine learning, but also um, working out how to better deploy machine learning systems. Um, I thought it was a great list, and uh, I really appreciated. You know, I, I've done the workshops long ago when it was much smaller, and I mean, it's it, it's just changed so much the selection process. Back in the old days, it sort of it was one of those sort of things just done in a smoke-filled room, um, <laughs> probably without any smoke in it. But you get the idea. Um, yeah. And you know, people weren't really aware. And and I think what's great about the blog is, Jen. I mean, I know that people have been prioritizing some of these things, but Jen's just done a great job of laying them out and sort of saying what things are good and what things not to do. Um, yeah. It is. It's sort of. I think there were 111 submissions and 51 workshops. So mm -hmm. you know, it's uh, it's of course disappointing for those whose workshops didn't get in. Um, I would encourage. Uh, you know them to not be too disappointed and of course you don't have to organize your workshop at Europe's. So you can organize your right. workshop um, uh, elsewhere and uh, you know if, if the idea is right keep work out a way to do it um, because it, it, it's not always even with a great selection process like they've got it, it's not always the case that we're all as capable as identifying what the important areas are but you see such diversity of areas such as tackling climate change i think it's fun yeah. that you get science meets engineering of deep learning i mean which is obviously you know going back to ben breck's talk and the sort of controversy around there you know mm -hmm. so you're sort of seeing the community trying to address those issues there's a workshop on a causal inference um we see ai for social good and also a separate workshop on in i think the developing economies or developing countries uh it looks like a really great list my complaint is which one are you supposed to go to how am i gonna get to all of these i don't have 51 of me right? i mean it's like uh see so, so wherever you are you're missing missing out on uh sort of 96 percent of the fun or something did i get that right yeah 98 percent <laughs> of the fun if there's no 96 because there's two days right, right first time that's um, and that's just it, mate. That's there's nothing we can do about that. Uh, you know, they they can't solve that problem. But it's just so exciting to see all the things that are going on. Absolutely, and hopefully the workshops can take into consideration scaling and making it accessible to people who can't come for for visas and other reasons. Yeah, so it's one of the we'll super on difficult things, things like isn't it? Because we know that workshops are um, right. Workshops, in some sense, work best when everyone's there. And there's these, you know, the most Absolutely. exciting workshops I've ever been to were often the ones in rooms that were too small because it feels sort of packed and exciting. <laughs> you know, then you go into this and this other workshop down the way with twice the number of people in it, but they're all spaced out and someone's shouting at a room. And you're like, no one's here. Uh, and of course, everyone wants to sort of maintain that, but it's pretty hard. Yeah, so any way that we can scale and involve people is great. Um, but, you know, it's, it's always a tricky balance, I think, as well. Absolutely. 
and I mean, there's a lot of really great content here, but me being me, I, I'm drawn to do the right thing, machine learning and causal inference for improved decision making, which I really want to be a Spike Lee workshop. Like that's just, I, I want it, please. Just like, let there be some Spike Lee reference somewhere. I bet someone has Spike Lee on a slide at the start. <laughs> I bet. I'm going to guess. Yes. And uh, yeah, no, I, yeah, it, it just looks like a great lineup. And of course, there's the usual sort of suspects there, deep reinforcement learning, Absolutely. Bayesian deep learning. Uh, we're going to solve climate change. Basically, you know, it will all be done. Medical imaging, yes. you know, autonomous driving. I think, you know, by after two days, it'd be like, OK, finished. All problems solved. We'll have solved all the problems in the world. Well, if you want to take a look at the list for yourself and decide, start deciding now on what you want to go to out of the 51 workshops, you can get a link to Jen Wartman Vaughn's blog post on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. So, Neil, this week's listener question for Talking Machines is, is one that I love to talk about and I know that you love even more to talk about. It's talking about, talking about how we talk about artificial intelligence and machine learning. Should we so, talk yeah. about that? Should we talk about it? Yeah, awesome. let's talk about that. <laughs> so the question is, I think one of the big problems we have in the field is the words we use. Intelligence is a landmine. What do you think are the next words that mean one thing technically and another thing societally that we're going to start mangling? But first of all, oh. we should establish that we're going to call this deep talking. Deep talking. Oh, Neil, can we do quaggles for deep talking? You know, you've got one layer which is talking about another layer which is talking. So it's just talking about talking. another layer which is talking about another layer. So we're layer. going to do deep talking. So let's make a name for it. And then let's say, what, what was the problem with the question again? That we shouldn't make up <laughs> random names for things? Right. Yes. No, not that we shouldn't make up random names for things. Oh. I think... But that we have we have words. word that means one thing, like deep. technically, like like intelligence, right? So the problem with the word intelligence is that every human is an expert on intelligence, quote unquote, right? But then it means something very specific when we are talking about it technically, like machine yeah. intelligence or artificial intelligence. We yeah. get these, we use these words that mean one thing to the lay public, but mean something else technically. And then we have a public conversation where we're, nobody's talking about the same thing. Yeah. And I think we're going to find this, the next section of the English language that we're going to effectively ruin is around the word creativity. But more and more, I see this around the word adversarial, right? Because it means something very specific technically. But the other day, I saw a, a, a post on the internet, an article called The Future of Machine Learning is Adversarial. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. I'll read this. But then it was literally about how the next step in machine learning is going to be people trying to hack your models. Mm. Uh, so like bad actors. Mm. And, and I was like, oh, this was not at all what I thought it was about. What did you think it was, was going to be on? I, I thought it was going to be like on, on adversarial methods. I thought it was going to be like Gans. about. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was going to be about GANs. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Um, yeah. I think intelligence is obviously a tricky one um, because with intelligence that means something very specific to people it's very personal to them it's a very emotive term in some sense and right. um i was at a meeting one of the faith and ai meetings uh and we were talking about and anyway and our conversation shifted someone wanted to talk about like i don't know singularity or something and sentient something or others and i was yeah well probably the problems facing us more around like social media and data and such. but that's not 
artificial intelligence, that sort of data and statistics. And I said, yeah, well, it is. It's a, you know, but this is a meeting on, you know. I said, but really, it is just data and statistics. And said, well, right. why don't we call it that then? Well, you wouldn't have shown up. <laughs> Faith and data and statistics. Faith and data and statistics. You just would be like, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, um, a particularly badly named field is supply mm. chain. I was mm. I, I wrote it down the other day and, you know, I just thought of chains and all I could think of was like one of those old toilet systems with a chain hanging off. Whenever anyone says supply chain, it makes me think of that scene from I Love Lucy when they're trying, when they're like in a factory and they're making chocolates and then the line goes wrong, the supply line goes wrong and they have to start eating the chocolates. That's what very often happens. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that very often happens. Well, you know, things like that do happen. No, yeah, absolutely. Um, but I'm not sure we eat the... I, I Actually, we don't really get as many reruns of I Love Lucy in the UK as you you get. But I, I did live in the US from 79 to 81. So I, I know... I don't know that so episode, you know but uh, I know the show. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, and I guess the interesting thing about it is a term like that is very dispassionate and no one's interested. Whereas actually, I think... When you look at something like supply chain, containerization of uh, our supply chain is what's enabled the global globalization is why, because goods are so cheap to move, it's why processing is all being done in the Far East. And it's not, it's, I think it's less about tariffs and stuff like that. It's much more about, oh, we've made it really cheap and efficient to move goods at scale around the world. It's a big societal effect, but oh, yeah. very little sort of interest in the way there is around AI like I have been at supply chains and I'm the, I'm probably the only one sitting there like, oh my god this is a mammal we're sitting on a mammal not a mammal not a mammal a mammal a mammal's like a guy wearing riding a bike but uh, a mammal I want a mammal this is and it's a white mammal as well and I'm thinking, and no one else kind of bats an eyelid it's just me sitting there thinking uh because it just hasn't come up I think in in that field to the same mm. extent um which and and that's probably how machine learning was sort of let's say ten years ago and and that focus so you know it's probably a good thing that in some sense intelligence as a word has brought in this additional even if it's sometimes misguided additional focus and questioned us about these things changed the way we do things um, so it is bad adversary it is bad but good adversarial gets me because actually I quite like the fact that it was about people trying to mess with your model because i think that's probably i'm nervous that gans well it is quite confusing now isn't it because there's adversarial attacks right which uh, there's then there's gans and and then i kind of have some concern with the adversarial attack stuff there's lots of interesting technical work and i'm just really curious about whether it means anything Mm. Because there's this sort of, everyone starts their, their adversarial attack talk by showing, oh, look, I can, you know, here's a car and the computer thinks it's a hippopotamus. And everyone sort right. of in the audience goes, oh, gasp. <gasps> and I'm sort of like, well, obviously it exists in a high dimensional space and that's really difficult to cover. It's like one of the first things, it's sort of to me, when it first, and, and I know that it's a big thing, it is interesting, but the first time it came out, I was like, I thought, oh yeah, that's cute, but obvious. Um, Right. But it really does take with people and they think something very fundamental is going on. And then then people say we have to solve this. And, you know, it is it is an interesting problem to solve. 
Um, and then a lot of work is done. The nice thing about it is you can do quite a lot of maths on what it looks like. And now you're in the situation, and this has happened multiple times before to the field, where um, what someone defines as a problem is then taken by a field like applied maths and disassociated from the origin of the problem and becomes the definition of this is the main problem in machine learning, that these networks mm. that you can manipulate the pixels. And I'm just like, you know, it's an illustration. I just don't think it is. I think the main problem in the machine learning, here's my big problem. AI, we are promising that we are going to do something very dramatically new. And because we talk about intelligence, people get distracted about that. Yes. What we are promising is that for the first time, we are going to automate processes uh, by not controlling the environment in which we're automating. Mm -hmm. So in I Love Lucy, I suspect what went wrong was Lucy turned up in the environment and the chocolate factory would have been just fine before she started interfering with the machinery, just knowing the sea. I don't know the show. I think so. That's probably right. That's the premise of most of it, I think. So what went wrong is Lucy did something uncontrolled in the environment and then that broke the system. Because the way we automate like a, fa a, a chocolate production line is we say, well, we'll have a factory and we'll tell people not to touch that. Don't right. touch that. Lucy, don't just don't touch that lever. And, you know, she touched it or something or something happened. Um, and most all of the ways, you know, transport, we build roads that um, in the United States, you even ban people walking in roads. You have laws. <laughs> you made it a crime to walk in a road, called it jaywalking. I think that was <laughs> sponsored by the motor industry. Most countries, it's perfectly legal to walk in a road. Um, but you know, there are controls on roads to try and make it easier to drive these automated transport vehicles around. With AI, we're doing something different. What people are saying is we're just going to throw these things in the uncontrolled environment and they'll just be fine. Mm. Now, Automating in the face of Lucy. Yeah, yeah, just we're going to give it to Lucy and say, try and mess Lucy, with that, And Lucy. it's going to be able to automate regardless of Lucy. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think that's going to work. Um mm. So I am sympathetic with the future being adversarial in some way, but I think the real adversaries are just going to be unforeseen circumstances of your deployment. And I worry that I have to be careful because there's some very elegant work on methods to prevent adversarial attacks, and it's drawing a lot of good mathematicians in. That's always healthy. You know, people get interested in these things from a technical side, but then they broaden their horizons. Um, but I, I think the my personal feeling is, yeah, that's that's even if that is going to be a problem, it's just the start of your problems. I mean, mm -hmm. it's much more. And going back to machine learning for systems uh, or systems for machine learning, if you think about the problems we just have with deploying systems from a security perspective, where people are exploiting holes to enter those systems and corrupt them, which is kind of trying to deploy a very known rigid system in an uncontrolled environment. Um, mm -hmm. When we try and deploy machine learning adaptive systems or things that are responding to data in a uncontrolled environment, you're going to get every headache that the security people are experiencing now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and even identifying when things are going wrong. And some of those headaches are things around like, oh, as far as we could tell, the system was fair when we built it, but now we've deployed it, it's gone in and it's making unfair decisions, it's discriminating some way we didn't foresee, how do we recognize that early? Yeah, it's not even a... Yeah, maybe adversarial um, 
in some sense, I think it does have too narrow a definition in uh, ML, and but we are really it's it's going to be such a big area. I don't even know how we're going to deal with it. Uh, and I suspect the answer won't be oh we've got some neat bit of maths where we can prove that um, that that Lucy can't mess in any way with our system because that's the whole premise of the show. Right, 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 <laughs> absolutely. Well, if you've got a question for Talking Machines, you can email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet at us at TLKNGMCHNS. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Randy Goebel, who is a professor at the University of Alberta and one of the founders of the Amy Institute over in Alberta. And when we sat down with him, we asked him the first question that we ask all of our guests, how did you get where you are? I think perhaps an important part is I'm a, a prairie kid from Melville, Saskatchewan, who grew up in a town of 4,000 counting dogs and chickens. Um, and when I went to university, I had no idea about what I wanted to do. But one evening when I was an undergraduate from engineering, switched to mathematics because I didn't like engineering, I stumbled across a book and literally a I stumbled across a book left outside the library at the University of Saskatchewan Regina campus then. Remember, this is mm. before World Wide Web. Um, and the book was published in 1968. It was called Semantic Information Processing and was an abstraction oh, wow. of, of um, eight PhD theses from of students of Marvin Minsky at the University or at the uh, at MIT. And when I read wow. this, when I read the summaries, this was I was 19 years old, I guess then. When I read the summaries, it really intrigued me that one could consider writing a computer program to do the kinds of things that those students did, to draw inferences. If I tell you that uh, Socrates is mortal and all men are mor mortal, and then I can draw a conclusion. Um, or all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, etc. What intrigued mm -hmm, me is mm -hmm. to be able to understand how to program computers to do this. And so since then, I've taken what you might call the path of opportunity and least resistance to continue to study computing science and to study artificial intelligence because it was always intriguing to me how humans could think without any obvious external signs. And I wanted mm. to understand whether or not it was related to how one might program a computer. And so I've been doing that since I was 19. And here I am today after working at many universities, working in industry, constantly, consistently pursuing the, the same goal is what does it mean to think and what does it mean to be intelligent? That's amazing. And you wear many, many hats of many shades and varieties of shapes these days, but I'd love to ask you about Amy. You are a co-founder there, correct? That started because of an opportunity in 2001. In the province of Alberta has always intermittently, depending on government, been very supportive of academic research. And in 2001, they created an agency called the Alberta Heritage Foundation for Science and Engineering Research, mirrored after the mm. similarly uh, founded in 1982, so 20 years before that, an endowment to fund science and engineering research. In one of their first calls for proposals, there was a call for doing something novel at the level of funding $2 million a year into special high-quality research that may have a long-term trajectory of value. So with three mm. of my other colleagues, we wrote a proposal, and, and we were given the money to start what was then called the Alberta Center for Machine Learning, or the Alberta Ingenuity Center for Machine Learning. 
So 15 or 16 years later, what we managed to do by hard work and good luck is build this world-class collection of people who are now starting to have impact in the world. And I can, I can elaborate ad nauseum. Yeah. So tell me about some of the projects that have come out of Amy that you have been most excited about. Sure. Recently, Amy sort of joined forces under the umbrella of CIFAR with also Vector and Mila. Yeah. Yes. Have you seen Amy change as a result of this closer collaboration with other uh, resource hubs around the country? Or do you feel like the organization is sort of staying true to its path? What sort of change do you see heralded by this new collaborations? Uh, it's a good question. I think that um, there are a couple of answers to that. One is that Amy has, in general, been larger in terms of the faculty members committed to the broad study of artificial intelligence than the other two institutes. So while reinforcement mm. learning is a significant expertise within us, it's about a third of our expertise of the 15 or 16 fellows. It has always tended to be broader, and so being plugged into the pan-Canadian strategy has not changed us that way, has not constrained us to be more focused like uh, Toronto right. and, and Montreal. Maybe the other important aspect is that, remember, we're in Edmonton, um, mm -hmm. and Canada is a very big country. Um, we acknowledge and recognize that most people in Toronto think that um, London, Ontario is as far west as you can go in Canada. <laughs> and and so innovation and um, ISED, the acronym for the federal government department, decided to invest in the pan-Canadian AI strategy and anointed CIFAR with the responsibility of distributing the funds. That helped mm. us somewhat because what it helped is we got attention we never got before. So our colleagues mm. all around the world knew that we were an excellent research institute and that we graduated more... PhDs and master's students than, than other such institutes, except maybe Tsinghua and Carnegie Mellon. Uh, but mm. we never got the attention in Canada because, you know, where the hell is Edmonton? Um, and I think that those, <laughs> those two things happened simultaneously. So now we're getting attention, I think, commensurate with our quality. And that was maybe one positive consequence of the CIFAR and the, and the ICED pan-Canadian AI strategy. So I think that that's one part of it. The other part that you asked a question about is is the breadth of our work and, and what we've done that's important. We've mm -hmm. always had a group within the group that did lots of game playing. So all the way from uh, my early PhD students, one of whom worked on first chess, who was who tied for the World Computer Chess Championships, then did checkers and solved wow. the game of checkers. So that was the first program that ever beat a human champion. Followed by um, DeepMind's AlphaGo was designed and built by two of our students from Amy. And nice. That, that's something that people don't often know, but, but that's acknowledged now. That's one of the reasons DeepMind's biggest lab outside of London is here. And then the, mm. work, the work on poker playing in two guises. So I think the things that get attention are about that really high-performance artificial intelligence that can beat the pants off of all humans. Absolutely. Broader than that underneath is we've always had very broad and deep intellectual roots in the theory of AI, including computational mm. complexity, um, logic programming and knowledge representation. 
um, machine learning and natural language processing. So we've always had that breadth and the breadth is pretty good because you use the high performance systems like AlphaGo to attract attention and the attention helps right. helps you raise money and keep yourself broad. So I think that we're also have maintained the breadth of our research interests, but that's not so hard to do with 15 crazy academics. Everybody's always asking new questions all the time. It might be easier to, to spread out than it is right. to move in the other direction. Well, one of the things that we recognize here is, is that in the pan-Canadian nodes of Toronto, uh, Montreal, or Vector, Mila, and Amy, is that we've built this out of uh, mostly a single computing science department. So it's a highly collegial group. We argue with each other, we make each other better, and we know we have world experts down the hall where we're not embarrassed to ask naive questions about an area we don't know mm. completely. And that has actually accelerated our strength too. That's fantastic. So breadth of questions, openness, open collaboration without embarrassment about things that might not be your specific area of, exactly. of expertise. And given the fact that Amy was the first established of these three groups, I mean, Mila was... Uh, 2017, I believe, and, and Vector was only a couple of years ago. Right. From your perspective as a co-founder of a group that has been so successful, now joined by these two sort of newcomers, what advice would you give for longevity for this kind of a project, for this kind of a, of a team? Mm, I, I think the leaders I know in both Vector and Mila already understand that, is, is that um, under the, what I call the current AI pandemic called by the, caused by the mm. deep learning virus, is I like that the pandemic AI pandemic yeah it's everywhere I I think the thing that that my colleagues that are scientific researchers easily keep in mind is to be engaged with industrial interest when it arises and there's a lot of it now but not distracted mm -hmm. by it and I think that that's the key is because there's relatively higher industrial involvement in the ecosystems around Montreal and Toronto compared to Edmonton. While it's growing here, we have always been able to keep our eye on the scientific ball. And that isn't mm. to say that the other institutes haven't. Um, the, the people who lead from the universities, the Vector and, and Mila, have been scientists for a long time. Um, and I think that the danger is to be distracted by it. I unfortunately see a whole generation of young PhDs who are incredibly intellectually capable mm -hmm. and completely preoccupied with the engineering of systems demanded by industry, which means they don't even understand the fundamental AI problems. They mm. think they're solved or they don't delve into the depths with sufficient uh, vigor to uncover those hard problems. So I think that that's one of the dangers. Yeah, absolutely. I've heard it talked about in the practitioner community as a bubble, but I love to right. think of it as as a pandemic. And I especially think it's interesting to think of it, you know, as a pandemic having a what is the virus of the pandemic and who is patient zero of of that virus? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's, a, it's a nice way to talk about the impact because a, a pandemic can be positive or negative, but it mostly depends how you manage it. Yes. Right. So given the fact that we are very clearly in a moment of pandemic, yes. are we going to see herd immunity or are we going to see, you know, a big die off or something like that? Do you have a prediction for how this will spin out? Oh, yes. Our scientists are always filled with predictions, reality <laughs> connected or not. Um, so one of the predictions comes because I'm a relatively old member of the AI community, right? 
Um, so I have mm -hmm. I have longevity, and it's either because I have good genes or I'm stubborn as hell. It might be both. <laughs> But, but, but what one sees is, and this happened before in the last so-called AI summer, which was largely focused on expert systems in the 80s, what, mm -hmm. what one sees is incredible zeal from industry to leapfrog ahead of their competition using any technology that, um, aside from lack of understanding, may give them an, an advantage. And I, I think the cooling off period will be when the overselling of deep learning, for example, starts to show that it's a component of gaining market advantage, but it's not the whole problem. It's not the whole solution. Mm. So, so the, the way many people talk about the current state of the AI pandemic is, as an AI scientist, all the problems are solved. I might as well retire and sit down and play my mm -hmm. guitar for the rest of my life. And the reality is that we've only just broached some of the toughest ever problems, and they're far from being solved. And we must be cautious as scientists to not be distracted by two things. One is industrial zeal. And that can distract mm. you. And then when it fails, funding fails, and you go back into your laboratory and say, okay, plan B. The other one is it's always been the case that artificial intelligence was something that every human believed they understood because, after all, every human is intelligent, and so we must be trying to yes. re rebuild humans. And so every human has an opinion about it, whether they're expert or not. And I think that that's created a certain kind of anxiety about ethics, morals, regulation, and all the other things that come with a very broad, shallow understanding of things. Uh, consider um, nuclear fission and fusion in the 40s and 50s is that there was a kind of a public knowledge of the potential dual use of nuclear fission and fusion, but it wasn't as broad because it wasn't as deeply understood. Now when you talk about artificial intelligence, people say, oh, I understand that. That's trying to get machines right. to do what I can do. And in fact, real AI scientists are scientists and study the science of intelligence not the science of replicating mm. humans. And that's one aspect of current artificial intelligence pandemics, uh, the current one, that gets confused a little. People think we're trying to rebuild humans. I have pretty good evidence that we already know how to build humans. <laughs> yes. And, and that's not my goal. My goal is to understand intelligence. The consequences of the science are the developments in technology that can be useful to us, for example. Yeah, absolutely. So what advice would you give to those um, intellectually capable young PhDs who were quote unquote born in summer and perhaps right. haven't had this experience and don't see this as a pandemic, but instead as sort of the standard way that the community operates? What would you say to them about how they should approach their craft and, and thinking about this field? I think one of the things to sort of calibrate their enthusiasm is to try to keep aware of two fundamental problems. One is that a real computing scientist knows there are things that are computable in principle and not computable in principle. Most of the young generation mm. has lost sight of the foundations. Foundations are important because that's what they are. They're not old. So if somebody of this generation says, well, I, don't read, I didn't read that paper. It was too old. It was published in 2017. Mm. Goodall's results on what you can use mathematical logic for were largely most influential as published in the 40s. And if people don't read that, they'll never know about the boundaries that they confront and why things aren't working. So I think that's my encouragement to my own students is don't lose 
sight of the history of our discipline because you're in danger then of being an engineer who's out of work as soon as people see the bubble burst on deep learning, for example. Mm-hmm. And you brought up a little earlier this idea that we have a massive sort of public understanding gap because every human is an expert in what it means to be intelligent and therefore sort of <laughs> believes that they understand what goes on in this field. Yes. Um, and and you have, you're involved in what I think from my perspective looks like one of the most important questions to be asking and working on in closing that gap technically around explainable AI with the XAI lab. Can you tell me a little bit about that and, and what yes. you guys are doing over there? So there are two ways to look at it. One, depending on your audience, is the technical foundations of what it means to build a model of a domain. So I'm going mm -hmm. to build a model of a domain of diagnosing liver cancer. I'm going to write down everything I know and try to get a computer program to generate consequences given symptoms and make a diagnosis. If the diagnosis is simply a label and you don't believe the label, then what you need to do is use the knowledge to produce a variety of explanations that convince the reader of the prediction, whether that's another computer or a human, that the prediction actually has a basis in fact and there's a chain of reasoning along those facts to produce the consequence or prediction. That can be made technical all the way back to literature at the beginning of the last century, like in the late 1800s, 1900s. A better way to convey to a public this is to think about the modern high-performance AI system. Take two that I'm pretty aware of, that is, that came from our group, AlphaGo and DeepStack. Mm -hmm. So the DeepMind um, game that plays Go and beats the world's best and the poker program that beats the world's best. The question you should ask yourself, and I do this with audiences when I talk about explainable AI, first thing I say is keep in mind while I talk who the best teacher you ever had was. Think about them. Mm. And as I speak, they eventually come to the point where I talk about building an intersection of models, that is, models about the knowledge we have, models about the language we use to explain those models. And invariably, everybody agrees that their best teacher is the one who could find an intersection of language and knowledge between a student and a teacher so that the teacher could find maybe alternative explanations to explain a concept that the student didn't yet understand. Now you turn mm. back to the high-performance artificial intelligence programs. Deep stack, the poker-playing program that can beat every human on the planet, right, cannot explain how it does it, and it can't help you be a better poker player. It can't teach you. Neither right. can AlphaGo teach you how to play Go. Neither can an autonomous or semi-autonomous driving car teach you to be a better driver and so explainable AI is about not just building the models to make predictions, but building the models that allow the person receiving the predictions to interrogate, interact with the performing AI to be able to get explanations and learn more about the domain in which the interaction is based. So that's a good way to think about it. Fantastic. And I think that explainability, transparency, interpretability, these sort of technical yep questions yeah all so, facets of the same coin yeah absolutely yes the approach to making those questions achievable technically is an area where i think a lot of people are are flocking to these days it's sort of you know it's, it's absolutely, the new trend yes. right yep. what would you say to the young researchers who are excited about 
working in this area, but perhaps are coming to it without a lot of experience. What do you think is the most prominent technical piece of making these models accessible and explainable that is, is achievable now? Good question. As people have asked me that, and, and this answer is really simple, I say, read a mathematical logic text. <laughs> and, and then they ask me which one, and I said, anyone. Is, is there's, Pick one. There, right. there's so much reinvention, and if you like brittle and fuzzy reinvention of ideas like interpretability, mm. there is no debate about what Absolutely. interpretability means. There is a debate right. about how to apply it to the current generation of deep and reinforcement learning. We're just starting a project here on explainable reinforcement learning, for example. That just means nice. while you're building your predictor of what action to take next, you're also building a model of why you ordered the actions to date by what you've learned about the world so that you can explain why you're making a particular choice. Oh, I decided mm -hmm. to move this way now because all of the previous interactions I had suggested that that's where I prioritize my movements. And then, like a good teacher, be able to arbitrarily refine that explanation at a deeper granularity until a student or the receiver of the prediction is confident about being able to trust the prediction. Mm -hmm. And that applies in medicine and law everywhere. Absolutely. And I think it's more and more crucial to create these explicable systems when we are working in application space that are directly affecting humans, right? When we are creating tools that are Absolutely. specifically made to make recommendations and predictions about human systems. One of the things that will probably intrigue listeners is the idea of where explanation and explanatory AI could help. And I think that industrially, one of the things that large industries are considering is building all of their software systems with explanation capabilities to actually improve safety. Mm -hmm. Just think about what would be the case if the Boeing software that used a single sensor causing right. the two disasters we know about, a single sensor with a piece of software that says, I am trying to reorient the aircraft. If I've got it wrong, press this button instead of simply continuing every five seconds to transfer control back to the software and put this aircraft in a nosedive. Or in your Absolutely. autonomous Tesla vehicle, the first deadly accident was the one in, I think mm -hmm. it was in California, where the driver was relying on a semi-automated driving function and the cameras and the LIDAR saw the side of a truck in what you might call dusk situations and thought it was sky and drove into right. it. So the modern view of this is that if you build explanation capabilities as part of the model you're building to manage all of these situations, what you're doing is two things. One is you're having a robust test for safety and you can carry on a dialogue with the people involved to be able to resolve ambiguity, which is inevitable. We will never have perfect systems. It's impossible. Absolutely. We've been talking about sort of heady, kind of large 40,000-foot things, but I'd love to take a moment and drill down on sure. what questions you are technically excited about right now. I mean, we shouldn't overlook the fact that you are a professor of computing science in the Department of Computing at the University of Alberta, right? right. So what what are you really excited about right now? I think that the, here's where the excitement of me and my lab and where we find the most, what enthuses us most 
is the ability to connect practical problems to deep theoretical problems that haven't been solved yet. Let me give you an example. Mm, As one of the things please. that we're no, known for is, is our um, work on building software to do legal reasoning. So about mm -hmm. seven years ago, um, one of my former colleagues from Japan, I worked in Japan meh, 35 years ago. I think I'm not old enough to have done that, but that's okay. It's a different question. <laughs> so what we did is his study of law was very frustrating because in answering legal questions for bar exams, he found that um, he didn't like the manner in which those bar exams were phrased because he said it took too much rote knowledge and that it's probably true that you can get a computer program to do this. And so we, we formulated this challenge for the world that's been going for seven years, and it really sounds like this, is that we pose a legal question and we ask people to build computer programs that can answer those legal questions. And we give them access to, for example, in the case of Japanese statute law, we give them the complete Japanese statute law in English or Japanese or Korean, and we give them questions in Japanese or English. And then they have to answer the questions, so the computer programs have to answer the questions. In trying to meet that challenge, we find all kinds of fundamental AI problems that are not yet solved. I can give you an example. Absolutely. The dominant source of errors in these systems and the competitions are two things that arise from language and how we write language. So, for example, mm. when we say something, there are so many different ways of paraphrasing something is if we don't cover a significant volume of paraphrase, we lose because the legal question and the way the legal statutes are phrased don't align well enough for us to answer the question. So paraphrase problems are about 35% of the errors. The other are the recognition of structures. So when I write a conditional rule that says, if the landlord is in this situation and the tenant is in this situation, then except for these conditions, here is the conclusion to draw. We don't understand law well enough to program computers to understand law in, in its structure. So that accounts for another 25% mm. of the errors. So about 60% of the errors arise only in those areas. That is the use of language. So that pretty well focuses our work on natural language to say, if you can't find the semantic similarity between two paragraphs, even if they're written by different writers, then you're doomed to fail. So, oh, that, so, so that's exciting for us because we, we drive medical reasoning in the same way. So when we try to look at medical texts and derive conclusions, in Alberta, we have something called HealthLink. We get transcripts of a dialogue between an arbitrary person phoning HealthLink, going through calling trees. Mm. Oh, I just returned from Mexico and my baby has a fever. I'm so worried. What I just mm -hmm, said mm -hmm. doesn't imply the baby was in Mexico, does it? Right. So we, right. Have, to be, we have to be able to disambiguate those texts and build hypotheses about what questions to ask and how to resolve them. And that's not a solved problem either, for example. So for us, that's exciting because when we work with what you might call the lawyers and the doctors, they're both clinicians of their disciplines, we find out what's hard and how they prioritize what could be done more efficiently to help them improve their operations, either, for example, in diagnosis or in decision-making in legal situations. 
Fantastic. And do you find when you are working with subject matter experts as collaborators that the gap in their understanding around the power of these predictive systems that you're building to help them or to explore the system that they are an expert in is as large as when we're thinking about it in an industrial setting where someone is trying to create an application that will solve a, an operation? Do you feel like it's a, a similar interaction or is there a gap there? I think that in asking that question, what I can say is that the pandemic has forced almost every industrialist to invest heavily in trying to understand at least the surface of mm. what closes those gaps. So pretty much any industrialist who's interested in applying AI believes that it can help at least accelerate the processes that they have that are driven by data. And I think that mm -hmm. that's a good thing. So it's a positive consequence of the pandemic. A negative consequence, maybe, is that is that we get people coming to us saying, we would really like you to solve our problems using deep learning. <laughs> yeah, right. The first question we have is, okay, why don't you tell us what deep learning is so we can calibrate what they actually know and don't know, and then say, well, maybe you should tell us more about your problems because maybe deep learning isn't the best solution. Mm. That's the secondary sort of dialogue that arises after the first one, and it's based on what your observations are about that gap. I think the gap is closing, but it hasn't yet come to the point where people come to say, we think we understand that artificial intelligence is about extracting signal from data to improve our competitive edge in whatever our marketplace is, so we want to be a data-driven company. But we're not sure mm -hmm. what the best methods are to achieve these performances and return on investment in these areas. So I think that that's right. the more disciplined answer to your question. Yeah. I yearn for the day when someone approaches a practitioner and says, I want to use Markov chain Monte Carlo to solve my problem. And then people <laughs> have, have overfitting on an even deeper level. We'll see oh, how far we can take absolutely. It, right? Absolutely. Yes, you're right. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I appreciate that. And you mentioned that you've just started a project on explicable reinforcement learning. Can you tell me about that? Well, one of the trajectories, so our reinforcement learning group is pretty good. They're not behind in the world, at least, but it's a very popular topic. <laughs> and so what they've recognized, back to the discussions about can AlphaGo explain to you how to be a better Go player, is they've realized that the creation of models of the domain that they're reasoning about is the next frontier of building more robust if you like high-performance AI systems, because it's in the representation of the domains where you can find and reason about achieving the next level of performance. Mm -hmm. So not just taking the source data, but building your model of where the source data comes from, what it means, how it interacts right. with the domain. And so almost all of our people here in reinforcement learning are talking about model-based reinforcement learning. The next stage is to introduce in the notion of what is required in the models to produce explanations like the teacher example I told you about. So our new project is mm -hmm. attempting to refine the search for models in reinforcement learning, further constraining them to a subset of models that can provide the basis for explanation. And so if you like, mm. reinforcement learning is largely about reordering and prioritizing sequences of actions that you can take in the world inside of an agent. Now what we want to do is to build models concurrent with those adjustments to actions that allow us to explain why the current set of actions is how it is and what alternative models would suggest adjusting or making different decisions with those actions. So model-based mm -hmm. building not one model but multiple models because just like the good teachers, they can create models and explanations that are alternatives just to help you understand what you don't yet understand. 
So that's the that's nice. the new project that we're just embarking on. That's fantastic. And I feel like as an observer of the field that reinforcement learning in the last couple of years has started to get that sort of trendy attention that we saw deep learning getting like maybe four or five years ago. Yes. Do you see that impact on the field and do you worry about how it might sort of skew or present the, the questions that are being asked in reinforcement learning? What, what sort of impact are you seeing? One of the impacts we see is the need in performance systems so the current systems being built by my deep mind colleagues as experiments, because remember, they're not industrialists. They're essentially, right. go they're essentially Google's AI research division, is the combination right. of both deep and reinforcement learning skews them in the following direction is deep learning is basically about classification. So if you can take data that's labeled and build a classifier, that is the power. And in almost every AI system, classification is a useful activity at many different levels. Reinforcement learning Absolutely. skews this towards what my colleagues will all say is that Reinforcement learning is about sequential decision-making. So you mentioned previously mm. Markov decision chains. So the combination mm. of deep learning as classification expertise and reinforcement learning, which is interaction with an environment to build policies for taking actions, mm -hmm. is I take a substantive and disciplined step towards sequential decision-making. Sequential decision-making with the explicit construction of a policy, I always say to my colleague Rich Sutton, is I like reinforcement learning better because you're actually explicitly building a representation, which you call a policy. However, a policy doesn't yeah. encode anything like facts of the domain. So a policy doesn't right. say that cats have pointy ears and dogs mostly have floppy ears, except for German shepherds and other like breeds. So that knowledge isn't right. embedded in a policy. So you need to be cautious that in building high-performance reinforcement learning-based systems, you don't lose sight of the fact that you still want functional knowledge of a domain. And I think that's where mm -hmm. the danger might lie. Absolutely. And so when you're trying to achieve that functional knowledge of a domain, what sort of advice do you have for researchers who are in this field about working with those experts who have that functional knowledge of the domain when you need to sort of bridge that gap between I am the expert in right. the system that is going to evaluate your structure, but you are an expert in the system and the information contained within that structure. How right. do you be a good collaborator? The collaborations these days, so, so Rich and I talk about scalable AI. And so what we want to do mm. is apply machine learning to what an expert knows to more rapidly acquire that expert knowledge. So in current supervised learning where you're doing classification, you label all of the instances. This is a cat. This isn't a cat. This is a cat. This mm -hmm. isn't a cat. You build a predictor. You showed another picture. It said, ah, that looks like a cat to me. No cat. Right. right. Yeah. But for more complex domains like the ones in legal reasoning and medical reasoning, what you want is deeper knowledge from the expert to be used as mm. a tool to build a system to accelerate the extraction of information from texts in the domain, for example. So we talk about using medical dictionaries to annotate randomized clinical trial research papers written by humans and extract all of the mm. content because we understand the structures of the papers and we can more rapidly build the models because we don't have to wait for the humans to annotate them all. And so that's where the scalability comes is the experts are not less important. They're in fact, in some sense, more important because they seed the annotation and labeling of content and we can adapt that labeling to all kinds of different domain knowledge and then accelerate the capture of data. 
if you tell me a few uh, things, fantastic. tell me a few things about what you're expert at, and if I can do enough language processing to find other documents that are similar enough to use your annotation of one document, then I can accelerate the process of building models. And that's what didn't happen in the 80s, is you couldn't wait until an uh -huh. expert wrote all the rules. It was time-consuming and expensive. Right. And you will still hear people say that, that annotation is time-consuming and expensive, but nowhere near as time-consuming as expensive as in the old days because we can accelerate it to some degree of clarity using machine learning to build models. Absolutely. But without that seed, you're essentially doing the wandering around in the dark that you ha used to have to do. But now if you have some sort of kernel, yep. you can grow from there. And in the kernel, you can start to implement some of the things we know. We know... We, we have developmental models, models of how humans learn. It's not a surprise that mm -hmm. those are generic enough to the intelligence scientists to say, oh, yeah, if, if I see a whole bunch of data and I distinguish it to say there are two clusters, let's label them. I'm going to label this one cat and I'm going to label this one dog. Right? So right. the whole idea of concept formation now can be accelerated as well. And you know, a child doesn't much care about whether the family pets are labeled as dogs or cats. He just is cautious about which one's going to lick him and which one's going to scratch him. And he calls one a scratcher and one a licker. Doesn't matter. Right. And Absolutely. so that kind of annotation can now be accelerated with machine learning methods. Yes. As sort of a last thought, I'd love to return to the pandemic that we had been talking about before right. and the, the, perhaps the researchers who have come up only in summer and the great excitement and the sort of trend chasing that we see a lot in the field as a characteristic. What right. advice would you give to a young researcher who's perhaps just starting out in order to ground them in the history of the field or the institutional memory of this field so that they can scale their own question asking and not fall into these pitfalls of quote unquote rediscovery that we see a lot? Yes. That, I mean, that's a good question. It's essentially back to what we uh, spoke about earlier, and that is every scientific discipline has a history, and whether that history is available by a web search to papers published um, later than 1998 or whether you actually have to go to a library or rely on Google Books or other library capture methods is not so important. But what's important is to build, if you like, a historical thread of things. Most AI textbooks have some historical thread of the discipline and what some of the highlights were. And I find lots of the modern PhD students studying machine learning have no interest in such history. Hmm. They think they're at the fringe, the frontier of things when they can't take a step in a direction at the frontier because they don't know what the trajectory is. And so they experiment and re uh. they experiment and reinvent things. This does not mean they're not clever people. It means that they're making almost what would look historically to be random decisions about where to find improvements. Mm. So I think that that's uh, one way to think about their encouragement. If they're not that way and they want to be engineers and have an impact in industry, then it's also not their measures of, oh, this is so much fun to apply this method to improve this game playing, is the industrial performance indicators are what's important. How much does it cost and how much improvement does mm. it buy me? Right. So there are many mm -hmm. people who get caught in the middle. There's a German word for Forschungsspiel, research playing, in that the German industrialists always say, mm -hmm. we can't afford to invest in people in industrial research simply playing with the toys and not having in mind a goal. Right. And, and right. I think that that's the challenge. Absolutely. So if you have 
a better grasp of the history, you will, with better priors, you can make better predictions. Exactly. You already get that. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it, improving your priors helps you focus on where you will get better predictions for sure. Professor Randy Goebel. Well, that's it for us on Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Neil Lawrence. Tune in next episode. <laughs>